You can remain standing for the reading of God's Word from Psalm 147. It's in your Pew Bible on page 525, Psalm 147. This is the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent it out to command the earth, uh, that it always accomplishes your purposes, that it melts us when it should melt us, that it encourages us when it should encourage us. We pray that it will be so this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You can be seated. I don't normally talk a lot of RUF from up here, but if I may, for just a couple minutes, just got back from our biannual training that we do in Atlanta. It was a really encouraging week for me. I got to hear from some great men in the PCA, Brian Habig from downtown Prez in Greenville, um, Joe Novenson from Lookout Mountain Prez in Chattanooga, and Dr. Liam Golliger from 10th Prez in Philadelphia. Those names may or may not mean something to you, but I tell you that so that you can know as a church that supports uh, our work of RUF on the campuses of UCA and Hendricks that uh, our denomination is doing a great job preparing me, uh, training me up to go to the campuses Uh, and to take the gospel there. Our denomination uh, cares about me as a young minister and and trains me well and sends me well. And speaking of campuses, I have a couple students of mine here. They're both going to be seniors at Hendrix. This is Mark and Jared. Give a little wave. All right. Uh, Also, a quick family update. Three months ago, we had our second child, a little girl. Her name is Rosie. She is very precious. She's not here this morning. Sorry. Um, I don't want to create a mad rush for the baby after the service. Um, One Christmas in the early 90s, my dad took my brother and me out into the garage, and he opened a box, and he showed us our very first computer. 
You may remember a moment like this in your household. We took it upstairs. We put it in the family room. And the very first website we ever went to was nba.com. My brother was dying to go there. It had a little graphic. It was a spinning basketball. It took about 15 minutes to load. And it was amazing. It was, it was practically magic. The internet has come a long way from that. It's far more a part of our lives. But uh, it's occurred to me that to this day, I don't really know what the internet is or where it came from or who made it or whether we're using it according to uh, its purposes. And so recently I heard an interview with a man named David D. Clark who teaches at MIT and he is considered at least one of the architects of the internet. That's why, probably why he's able to teach at MIT. Uh, and they asked him what he wanted to tell people about the early days of the internet. And this is what he said. He said, people should realize that the internet is an engineered artifact. It's not something that just happened. Well, so too the world and our lives. According to Scripture, they didn't just happen. They are engineered artifacts with an engineer behind them, a big E engineer. And if you're a Christian, you think that that engineer is the triune God of the Bible, that he made all things good, that he has a purpose. Because of that, we have to acknowledge that our world works a certain way, the way that God made it. The author, Umberto Eco, when asked if he sort of programs or micromanages his characters in his books, he said, no, they, they do what they're going to do, not what I tell them to do, but they are obliged to act according to the laws of the world in which they live. Well, so are we. We are obliged to live according to the design and the desires of the God who created us. Of course, we don't do that. The problem, Christianity says, is that we have broken this creator and creature relationship by breaking God's laws. We've broken them every day in thought and word and in deed, and we call that sin. And our sin has, has gummed up the works of this world so that now I think it feels a little like the Internet if you spend some time on the internet, then you know that there are some uh, good things about it. Uh, there are places in the internet that are uh, right and true and helpful. And then there are dark corners where sin and hatred and confusion reign. So the internet, like life, is sort of this mishmash of good and bad and funny and tragic. And we can tell. We can tell just by looking at this world that it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. This world has gotten sideways with God, with our Creator. So where does that leave Christians? Well, I think it leaves us with a sort of gap, uh, a gap between our professed belief in a God who is in complete control and then our sort of functional belief sometimes that He's not really in control. And so we despair over what we see in the news and we despair over our own faults and failures so that our lives say too often, what is this again? Who made this? What are we supposed to be doing here? I think Psalm 147 is one antidote for that type of confusion and despair. I think Psalm 147, if you let it sort of prick your heart, can inoculate you to some of the madness that's out there in this world, to some of the madness that is inside you. Think of it this way. 
If life is like a book and you don't particularly like the chapter that you're in, Psalm 147 is kind of like flipping to the dust jacket and the author blurb there. So you can go and look and say, oh yeah, this person is good and I can trust him. I can trust him with the story. In other words, Psalm 147 answers this question. How do we function in troubling and uncertain times? How do we function when the wheels of justice and righteousness and peace seem to be stuck or maybe even uh, turning in the opposite direction? What does God have to do with it and how should we respond? Well, that's what we're going to think about today. We're going to do it in three parts because the psalm itself breaks down into three parts. I'm going to use the headings from Derek Kidner's great commentary on the psalms. Uh, First, verses 1 through 6, the God who redeems. Second, verses 7 and 11, the God who cares. And third, 12 to 20, the God who commands. So 1 through 6, the God who redeems. 7 through 11, the God who cares. And 12 through 20, the God who commands. So let's look at the first of these, the God who redeems. It's pretty clear pretty quickly in this psalm that it is written to some really hurting people, more specifically to people who are familiar with exile. Now, the Bible tells us that that is actually our situation, too, that we may not be literal refugees, but we are nevertheless spiritually displaced. And so we are groaning, the scriptures say, with creation. And that's not a particularly Christian thing, right? Uh, If you go look at the nightly news, I don't know what that is other than a, a groaning with creation. But Christians have traditionally spent a lot of time thinking and writing about these ideas, this idea that the world is passing away and something else is coming that's better. So the message of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, for instance, a very famous book, in songs like On Jordan's Stormy Banks, it's this idea that Christians are in exile now, but that someday we will be home in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, the Israel, uh, Israelites felt this very poignantly, right? They had lost both a spiritual and a physical, literal home because of their disobedience. And so they're called, in verse 2, the outcasts of Israel, or more literally, the scattered ones. Uh, there's some disagreement about whether the psalm is, is pre-exilic or post-exilic. For our purposes, I don't think it makes a big difference We may not know the psalmist's exact situation, but we feel an affinity towards him in that we are not at home either. No matter the sort of relative uh, cultural power of Christianity in our particular day and time, which we all know can ebb and flow at different times, no matter, we are just passing through. But even so, we still live here, right? We are still living in in this world, but not of it, the Bible tells us. So what should we do? How should we respond? The psalmist is pretty clear. He says we should praise the Lord. The last five psalms of the Psalter all begin and end with praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Now, if that sounds counterintuitive, it's because it is a little bit. That is a, a habit of God's, I would say. Uh, to surprise us in this way, because the people who would have been reading and singing and using this psalm are a mess, 
or at least they will do until the mess gets here, as I heard someone say in a movie once. They are scattered and broken and hurt and weak. So why would they praise God in, in a time of trouble? Why should we praise God in a time of trouble? Well, it's because tough times don't last. And tough people really don't either. They're like grass. They wither and die, just like people who aren't tough. But God does last, and he is faithful. Or think of it in terms of marriage vows. In terms of covenant, we say uh, to our spouses that we are with them, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. So our particular circumstances don't determine our relationship with our spouse. In the same way, our particular circumstances shouldn't determine our relationship with God. So praise the Lord. It's an invocation. It's a call to worship. And then we get to hear why. First, verse 1, for us, worship is good and pleasant and fitting. It is strong medicine for weak, tired souls. We're down here in the muck, in the mire of this life. Praise lifts us up. It's a renewal. It's a feast. It's a reordering of our affections towards God. And second, for him, who is this God that we praise? When well, verses 2 and 3, he's a builder, a gatherer, a binder of wounds. In other words, he's a, a redeemer. Now, that idea is pervasive in Scripture. In the middle of his suffering, Job says, I know that my redeemer lives. John Wesley took that and turned it into a hymn. Handel took it and turned it into an aria in the the Messiah. God is an architect of good. He is a mother hen. He is a doctor with a deft touch. That's what the psalm tells us. What do we mean by redeemer? Well, ultimately, big R redeemer, we mean from sin. But in another way, I think we can also say that God is a fixer. If you grew up with a dad like mine, this might... uh, you might get some echoes of this. My dad had farmed, and if you farm and you don't fix stuff, then you don't have any food on your table. So there's no option to just sort of leave the tractor out there in the field until you get around to it. So my dad was a fixer. If I broke something, I knew that I could take it to him and that he would know what to do. He would fix it. And so too, our Heavenly Father, he fixes broken things, sometimes in this world, but fully and finally in the world to come. So he fixes broken marriages, he fixes sad and selfish hearts, and he works through his spirit to breathe life into new things. We should praise him in the middle of all of this brokenness in our world and in our own hearts, because even if they're not fixed now, they most certainly will be. One day. But how powerful is this Redeemer? Does he have a range? Does he have a specialty? Verses 4 and 5 give us some clues. He's so powerful that he determines the number of the stars. But he's so personal that he gives to all of them their names. This is echoes of Isaiah He says, God is he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name because he is strong in power. Not one is missing. In fact, in a lot of the Psalms, Kidner says, we're singing the tune of Isaiah. His power and wisdom is without measure. 
In other words, God knows the right thing to do, and he always does it. And the same God, the same Redeemer is the one who, verse 6, lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. In other words, he is just. Verse 7, we should sing to the Lord with thanksgiving in all circumstances. Praise the Lord, the God who redeems. Second, he's the God who cares. The psalmist has told us about how God numbers and names the stars, and now he starts to descend down to us. Verses 8 and 9, God covers the, he- <clears throat> the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food. The stars are beautiful, right? They declare God's uh, power toward us. But here the benefits are more direct. The clouds bring rain, that bring grass, that give the beasts food, that give us food. This creation is like a Rube Goldberg machine. All these different things working for our good. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this recently, because I haven't, but almost everything we eat, even if it's corn that has been somehow you know, processed into uh, oblivion, into little colored chunks of sugar, uh, God grew it. It was at some points in a field somewhere underneath rain clouds and blue skies and starry nights, and it's just breakfast to us. But in reality, it is God marshalling all of these powerful natural processes that he set in motion just so it could become provision for us. And that's just food. I mean, have you ever thought what would happen if God took his hand of provision away even for a moment? No food, no water, no air, no blood pumping through our veins. What then? We don't think about that very much. Uh, We operate as if we don't live in an engineered artifact, as if nature is just automatic and self-determining and stars and clouds and rain and crops and animals, they're all just there. And the psalmist reminds us, no, no, no. This is the work of your creator and redeemer. I mean, I don't, I don't want to over-spiritualize this, but when I really think about how I say grace over meals, the reality is that I say it as if the food is going to expire at any moment, right? God, thank you for this day and the food and all you give us. Please forgive us our blessings. Bless us to our bodies. Amen. It's like somebody in a movie trying to defuse a bomb, right? Red wire, blue wire, green wire. Thank you for the food, blessed our bodies. Okay, I said the code, now we can eat. That's what it feels like. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem is my heart, as it often is. God isn't really interested in my code, in my sort of pseudo-prayer. The heart issue is what we're getting at here in verses 10 and 11. This God, this author, engineer, the creator, redeemer, what does he require of us? How do we act according to his design and his desires? It's pretty clear that he wants to be praised, but how so? How do we act according to him? What do we owe him in our praise? Well, here's why he's not very impressed by. He's not very impressed by the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. It's kind of strange phrasing, but this is martial imagery. 
Israel is scattered, it's homeless, it's on the streets of this world. And when you're in that situation, you just want to be safe, right? Um, You just want to know that uh, no one can harm you. You don't want to be scared anymore. You want to know that you can win your battles. So the question is, is that us as Christians? Is that you? What are your horses, your battalions? Are they earthly things? Cultural power, political power? Are they spiritual things used in an earthly way? Knowledge, Bible knowledge, apologetics, means of grace maybe even. The word, prayer, sacraments. We should be careful. It's easy to put our hope in those things because they are so close to being right. But we can have them and still be wrong. That's why Francis Schaeffer said, we don't live either by keeping a list or ignoring a list. We live by moving from an outward situation to an inward one. He says, I can take lists that men make and I can seem to keep them, but to do that, my heart does not have to be bowed. The bowed heart. That's the inward situation that verse 11 tells us about. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. We should pay attention here because this great God is looking at us. And that is the rub, right? That it is possible to know almost everything about God except that he's listening, except that he's watching. Fear and hope. He's talking about your heart. I mean, what is your heart other than your deepest hopes and fears? Those are the biggest, the innermost gears in the engine of you. In the Bible, the heart isn't just a seat of emotions. It's much more than that. It's your desires, your loves, your vision of the good life. Your hopes and your fears are connected, by the way. Right? We fear that what we hope in will be taken from us. And we hope that our fears will never be realized. And God steps right into the middle of your heart and says, both of those things should be pointed directly at me. Not at your spouse, not at your retirement, not at your house, not even your wisdom or your faith or your repentance. God says, I myself am the only hope that will never fail you. I am the only fear that will never overwhelm you. Now that is very counterintuitive, right? That the weapons of war in this groaning world would be entirely inward. A heart whose ultimate hope and ultimate fear is in the Lord our God. Nobody else talks like this. Nobody in our world. Nobody else cares about our hearts more than our legs, our, our, who we are, than what we do. I've been reading a book called um, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. It's about addiction. It's written by a doctor who works on Skid Row in Vancouver. And he points out that we are all on this scale of addiction somewhere. Uh, The question is just what we're addicted to. His own example uh, for himself is classical music. He is a compulsive classical music buyer. I don't know if he's a Christian, but that is a very Christian idea, right? That actually we can take a good thing and worship it sinfully, and want it sinfully. And he points out that so many of our addictions are just socially acceptable. Um, 
for example, if you're a workaholic, you could be simultaneously disconnected with your family, totally on edge, unable to relax, and you could be getting rewarded for it with bonuses and promotions. Such is life in a world that values the strength of the horse and the legs of a man. And often we are right there, right? We are more interested in the outward situation than than the inward one. But God is different. He is not very impressed by those things. In fact, I think if we read the Bible honestly, he's not very impressed by much at all, right? He's impressed by this. He says, I take pleasure in those that fear me, in those who hope in my steadfast love. In other words, how do we relate to God in troubling and uncertain times? We start here. We start in the posture of verse 11 in a a healthy fear that God would withdraw his hand even for a moment and in hope that he would not forsake us, that he would build something better, that he would gather his scattered church and bind up our wounds. We think we have to do those things, right? But it's not true. We just have to be connected to the one who can. And that's really hard to do. I think if it was was easier, we would do it more often, right? We would be better at it. So how do we do this? Well, the psalmist says that we do it by looking to God's word. That's our, our last section here, the God who commands. Verse 12 sort of begins the cycle again. Praise the Lord. Jerusalem, Zion, Christians, praise the Lord. You who have seen him at work, who know that you can trust him, praise him. Verses 13 and 14, he strengthens, he blesses, he makes peace and provides for you. Then in verse 15, we get a taste of where the psalmist is going. He says, uh, he sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. In other words, God rules our world by the word of his power at all times and in all seasons. The snow, verse 16 is a word from our God. The frost like ashes, the crystals of ice are his. I should have preached this sermon in January. It would really hit home for us. The earth is covered in them so that no one can stand before his cold. And then, in a breath, one more word, it all melts. Verse 18. That's more like it, right? The heat. This is God in all of his creative splendor, in this this comprehensive sovereignty, the artist at work commanding every little detail. So how does God accomplish his will? He need only speak. Rain and snow and sunlight and drought and flood and summer and winter and fall and spring. They go out from his mouth like a king sends his messengers. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. And this God, in all that power, has spoken to us in salvation. 
One commentator says this, his salvific activity is creative. His creative activity is salvific. He's creator and redeemer. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Kidner says, God doesn't program us, he addresses us. He wants a relationship, not just a a sequence of actions carried out. That's the problem with our lists and our codes, right? Here's a question for you. When you relate to God, do you favor his transcendence or his eminence? In other words, do you think more about his greatness, his power, his authority, or about his kindness and his provision in your life or his nearness? My family has a boat. It has two engines. If you hammer one engine and you leave the other one in neutral, you will go at best sideways. <laughs> at worst, you will go in a circle. I think there are some things like that in Christianity. Is Jesus fully God or fully man? Right? Is God transcendent or is God imminent? We need both engines wide open because the answer is yes. Yes. He is both of those things. He is powerful and he is personal. And this psalm reminds us that we have to hold those things together in our minds. That he is the creator beyond our comprehension. That he is the redeemer who seeks relationship with us. Not a sequence of actions. Not a list. Not an outward situation. And therefore, this God in all this abundant power with wisdom beyond measure, the God who commands everything from the stars in the sky all the way down to the blades of grass underneath our feet, he stepped down. The transcendent became imminent. He didn't just send his word like a messenger. His word became flesh, became the messenger itself so he could bring the message all the way to us. I want to get my toddler's attention. I hold his little face. I tell him. And that's what God has done in Jesus. So he could tell us, yes, sin has gummed up the works. Our world is broken. Our relationship is broken. But in Jesus, God paid the bill himself. Jesus opened the way. The Lord takes pleasure then in those who fear him in those who acknowledge their sin towards God and their dependence on Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love, in those who have put their hope in Jesus, crucified, dead, and raised. Jesus is the answer to every question that we have in this psalm. How will God build something better? How will He gather His scattered ones and bind up all their wounds? How will he strengthen and bless and make peace? These are all promises, right? And the Apostle Paul tells us that God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And then he says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of these things lead to praise. And he is already fulfilling these promises. I'm just not sure if we're noticing it. Uh, When you gather to worship and you come here and you are shoulder to shoulder with people who you would not normally socialize with 
and you are praising God together. You're declaring through song and confession and prayer that you're broken, that you're sinful, that you're in need of a Savior. That is a gathering of the scattered ones. When Christianity is dying in the West, but it's exploding in China and Africa and in Latin America, that's because God is on the move doing exactly what he says he'll do in the psalm, in strengthening, blessing, making peace. The world feels as chaotic as the internet, but in reality, it is the most engineered artifact ever made. It is going completely according to his plan. And we do live in troubling, uncertain times. That is true. We have something sure and stable that we can hang our hats on. A perfect God himself. And through faith in Jesus, turning from sin, when we put our hope and our fear in the Lord, an outward situation can become an inner one. And we close the gap between what we say we believe and what our lives really look like. And then the statutes, the rules, become our pleasure as we live according to the engineer's design, as we live according to our creator's desire. And through him, our cultural moment, I think, becomes not a burden, but a field white for harvest. And through him, we fret less. We say, what can man do to me? And we hope more, not in the things of this world, but in the one to come, in the new heavens, in the new earth. And when we question who made all this, what is the point of all this? We look square at Jesus, face to face. We look at our creator and redeemer, worthy of praise. How do we relate to him in times of trouble? We do it in this way, through his word, in the posture of of a hope and a fear that is centered on God alone. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we can put all of our hope and our fear in you, that we do not need to worry, that we do not need to fear anything but you, and that we do not have to sink our hope in anything but you. We can trust you, can trust that you have good things for us, and that the new heavens and the new earth will be ours one day. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you have bought that for us in Jesus Christ and in him alone. We pray all this in his name. Amen.